Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. For those who took gospel well this, uh, this term, I'm about to use a, an illustration that I actually shared this past week, so please bear with me. Um, while we were in Burundi, Carlin, who's one of our gospel partners, he took us to one of Burundi's greatest historical treasures. It's really a national monument, the source of the Nile River. And for the three of us who went, it was exciting to see this wonder, this wonder of the world. After all, this is the Nile River. Next to the Tigris and Euphrates River, uh, the Nile River is one that birthed the civilization of Egypt. And so it was quite exciting and looking forward to that time. After all, this is the river that Moses turned into blood. So we made our trek, we paid our admission fee. When we got to the source of the Nile River, we saw this. <laughs> that was the source of the Nile River. In fact, that's a close-up. If you actually saw it from where it was, the stream was, I mean, it's not a stream, it's a trickle, and it was so small. And we just stood there thinking, is this it? This can't be it. This can't be the source of the Nile River. And that's sort of the idea of what we think of when we think of gospel mission flowing forth from the gospel. Because the mission of the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth, but the gospel itself, how did it begin? Well, what does it look like? On the one hand, it looks like a criminal dying on a cross. And people scoffed and said, what is this? This is nothing. But yet, this nothing gospel of a criminal dying on a cross would birth an eternity for endless peoples and tribes and tongues and nations. 
This is the power of the gospel. What at face value looks like essentially nothing. What to the Jew was a stumbling block. And to the Gentile, it was foolishness. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so it makes sense that the gospel, insignificant as it seems, moves forward to go even to the ends of the earth. From this passage of scripture, we see this gospel moving forward. And at first glance, it really does look like nothing much. But then suddenly, it just extends. And so we're going to look at first this week, the foundation of gospel mission in verses 27 to 30. And then next, the fields of gospel mission in verses 31 through 38. And then next week, we'll look at the fruits of gospel mission, verses 39 through 45. So first, I'd like to look at the foundation of gospel mission from verses 27 through 30. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. In these few verses, we see the foundation of gospel mission. That is to say, the gospel. And it really is so stunning, so breathtaking, that I'd like to look at three implications of looking at this core foundation of the gospel. First, the gospel, it promotes upheaval of one's system, really the world system. The disciples, as John records, marveled at what he was talking about. They marveled because they saw Jesus. He was a Jewish male rabbi teacher who is incredibly moral, speaking with an immoral Samaritan woman. And when they saw that, they were stunned. How could Jesus be talking with this woman? It was actually, to put it rightly, it was scandalous. But it's scandalous because the disciples and the Jewish leaders and everyone else believed they were morally righteous, while this woman was obviously not morally righteous. And that's what the gospel does. It turns the world's systems of morality and righteousness completely upside down. It tells us that the gospel opens the doors wide for a woman like this because Jesus died for this woman as well as for all of us because we are told that all have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one, as Paul says in Romans 3. The church is a community who not only admits that they're unrighteous, they actually embrace unrighteousness. They confess unrighteousness. We confess unrighteousness. We admit guilt. We admit that we are sinners. And if we don't do that, then why do we need Jesus at all? Why are we even a Christian? We adore Christ because we truly believe we have been rescued. We believe that it's this truth that is the world's greatest hope to the greatest problem of the world, which is sin. And so with this comes this upheaval of the way that we think of community, life, the systems of our world. Next is this concept of new belief. 
and new life. The central motif of chapter four is water. You see this continuously throughout this chapter. This woman goes to a well to draw water. As she goes to this well, Jesus meets her, encounters her, and promises her living water. But of course, she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand. She doesn't understand until suddenly she does understand. And it actually happens quite quickly. What does she do when she does get it? She actually leaves her water jar behind, and that's pretty significant. I don't think John just haphazardly puts that statement there. Often when someone encounters Jesus, when they truly decide to follow him, they leave everything behind. They leave something behind, something that they treasure. There's an old hymn that says, the cross behind me, uh, the world behind me, the cross before me. And so here we see the same thing. It's very much the pattern of what it means to follow Jesus. Peter, James, and John, we are told that they left their nets behind. What does that mean when they leave their nets? Their nets was their occupation. James and John, they were the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee also was a fisherman. And for those of us perhaps who have either tried to live our parents' dreams or are living out our parents' dreams or have not lived out our parents' dreams. There is something to leaving the profession of our parents behind, especially in Jesus' day where you literally did what your parents did, what your father did. And so for them to leave their nets behind was not just leaving behind their career and their sense of provision and uh, providing over their family, but they're leaving behind their family heritage, their traditions, their values. Levi the tax collector. He leaves behind his tax collecting booth. I mean, he was ridiculed for that position because a tax collector was a traitor to the Jews. They were collecting taxes on behalf of the hated Roman government and oftentimes skimming the top off for themselves. So for Levi to leave behind the tax collecting booth, it was not only his provision, but it was his identity. It was something that he was mocked for and he had borne a lot for it. And so for him to just simply leave that behind was no small feat. Mary, as you can recall, broke her alabaster jar of perfume. All of her life savings, she broke it over Jesus' head to anoint him for burial. That in and of itself was an act of saying, Jesus, I trust you with my life, everything. This is a woman who had no other recourse of hope other than that alabaster jar of perfume. That was her everything. And she would leave that behind. Joseph of Arimathea, he gave his tomb to Jesus. We might not realize what that means, but uh, if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you'll see that the tombs of families, they were very much a part of family life, family tradition, extended family. It was your heritage. Therefore, when Abraham bought that plot of land to have a tomb and he buried his wife, Sarai there, Sarah and Hagar and all the different people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were all buried in this one tomb because in that tomb existed a whole lineage, an ancestry, an identity, a nation, a people. For Joseph to simply give over his tomb was no small task. 
It was to say, Jesus, I give you my family heritage, my traditions, my values. The rich young ruler shows us that sometimes it isn't easy to leave everything behind. Jesus knows exactly what he's going to ask of you. He knows what is that one thing in your life that you say, Jesus, you can have everything in my life, but don't take my child from me. Don't take my health. Don't take my investments. There is something. And for this rich young ruler, Jesus knew he will give up his morality. He will give up his efforts, but he will not give up his riches. And so there are instances where Jesus says, someone comes and Jesus says, follow me. And he says, first, let me bury my father. First, let me say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. That's a hard thing to hear. I mean, when you read that, you think, isn't that a little harsh, Jesus? Why would you do that? But Jesus knows that if he were to let that man go and bury his father, eventually he would have to take over the estate, have to care for that family that was there, and slowly but surely he'd forget about Jesus. See, Jesus knows exactly what is deep in the heart of all of us, what we cherish, what we treasure, and what we say, I'll give up everything or most everything, but not this. There is something that is in some way symbolized in all of their hearts. And for this woman, it was the jar of water. What was she leaving behind when she left behind that jar of water? You know, remember why she was there at noon? She was hiding. She was ashamed. She had been divorced five times, living with a man who was not her husband. To go at noon at that time with her water jar was the way and the means by which she would protect herself and her what little reputation she had left, her dignity. And she was afraid of what people thought. She was hiding. And she didn't want to yield her life to anyone else. Her water jar was not only her physical security, but it's actually very much water was for her the means by which she would keep Jesus at bay. She would prevent Jesus from getting too deep into her heart. So every time Jesus would say, well, this is who you are, she would come back to the water. Well, you don't have a cup to drink from. What about, this is Jacob's well, and therefore my ancestors know about this. Every time she, had, she referenced the water to actually deter Jesus from going too deep into her heart. It was her protection, her, her fig leaf, you might say, to cover her hiding, her sin. But yet Jesus would not give up. And when she would turn and actually see the living Christ, only then was she willing to completely leave the water jar behind. And I do think in some way, every person who follows Christ is called to leave something central to their life behind. If you are a believer of Jesus, if you call yourself a born-again Christian, then somewhere along the way, you had to leave something behind. Something that is important and precious to you. For some of you, it's your reputation. Maybe your sense of security, your career. Maybe a relationship. Someone whom you loved, and yet you knew that if you were to 
perhaps marry this person, then you would probably turn away from the Lord. So you left that relationship behind. Maybe you left behind your pride, your wealth, your dreams of a family. I know when I first felt the call to ministry, the Lord was actually asking me not about the call to ministry, but about am I willing to even leave behind the acceptance of my father who didn't want me to go into ministry? Was I willing to leave that behind? And that was a battle. I do think every believer of Christ, you have to actually be battling in some way. What is it that you treasure the most? Is it your family, your health, your children's success? This is a battle that is ongoing. Uh, just yesterday, I was looking through my Facebook and someone friended me. It was a, a friend of mine from a while ago and I accepted. I actually haven't had anyone try to friend me in a while and that's a good thing. So I accepted and then I started, I haven't seen this person in quite a while. I looked at where they're at and you know, their, uh, their son, their oldest son, I learned had graduated from MIT and their daughter was now at Harvard. Those two things, their son had graduated from MIT, their daughter had, is now at Harvard. And in that moment, this little worm came into my mind, this thought of just this wow, this sense of comparing my children to their children. It happened so quickly like that. And I'm not even saying that where my, what my kids are at, what they're doing is bad or good, but it's just startling how quickly such a thing happens. That is a longing to go back to the water again, to not want to leave the jar behind. And it happens over and over in your life. Something that will say you get a promotion. And suddenly you get a huge bump in salary if you move to a place or you work really long hours so you never spend time with your family or especially with the Lord. And that temptation becomes so real. And we're so ready to give up our soul for things that will fade. Christ always calls us to leave something behind. Your intellect, your career success, your retirement, your comfortable retirement, your sense of righteousness. I was meeting with a few people yesterday. We were talking about marriage and those things that happen. You know, when in those early years of marriage, that first year, suddenly those things that are so, like you're willing to fight with your spouse over anything, and I've experienced that, and I know some of you have. Now 25, over 25 years later, I think, did it really matter that much? Really? Like those things that matter so much to you in your first year of marriage where you're literally like two big rams battering each other. And then 25 years later, it's why did we fight about that? It's so ridiculous. You know why? It's because we refuse to leave ourselves behind. There is a, just a love of self that deeply controls our hearts and it destroys relationship and ourselves. We're eating away at our own soul. 
To think that you can control your life based on your efforts and own merit, it's a fool's errand. You will never be satisfied. Never. I mean, seriously, when I looked at that Facebook post, I thought, I am rich where my kids are at, and here I am going back to the vomit once again. Every dog goes back to its vomit. And I was going back to vomit, even for a moment. It's really disgusting, actually. I think it's disgusting. I'm disgusted with myself. And that's unnerving. Because it's a fool's errand. It doesn't work. That road is a road of loneliness and darkness. Always believing that there's something better for me. My life, my way. And that person closes their hearts to people and to the Lord. And that person lives a lonely, lonely life. The gospel provides new life. It forever changes. Not to misery, but to unceasing joy. The Lord does not give us this road so that we're going to be miserable. It's actually to the utmost joy. We're going to, we, we're going to, we sang a song about heaven. Heaven is eternity, eternity of joy, new life, freedom. May we not forget that. And that is the third sort of dimension, implication of this foundation is freedom. How many people are enslaved by their desire to belong? It drives the whole trans movement, actually. People, children, they so desperately want to fit in. And before we're so judgmental to so many people, recognize that if you listen to their stories, it's, I needed to do this to finally fit in, to finally belong. It won't happen. You never truly belong in the end. It's temporary. But it does show the heart of every child. I mean, it, it's not just adults. It's not just teenagers. Even a five-year-old can look and see there are a bunch of kids playing, and they want to be a part of that group. And then as they approach, they're told to get away for whatever reason. It could be because maybe they don't speak a certain way. It could be because they don't look right. It could be because their parents have a certain type of job or they're a certain ethnicity. And suddenly they're pushed aside and cast aside. And that sense of belonging is, if I don't belong there, then if that group, I just need to perhaps change my gender or do whatever it takes. I, I'll do that because I want to belong. You know, it is because we as a church... Are we really able to give that type of community to people who do not fit in? Teenagers, teens, when in Axis, there are some who don't always fit in and belong. And so it's so easy to head it towards little groupings of people. And then you have one youth, one teenager, who's looking longingly to belong. And yet, because maybe they're not necessarily someone I would connect with or click to. I just say, oh, we're not going to deal with that person. We don't look around and see who's alone, who's by themselves, who doesn't belong. And for that person, we need to welcome them in. That happens to adults. <laughs> it happens to the five-year-old. 
So I would say this is that the answer, though, is not even going to be for us to be welcoming. The answer is the gospel of Christ. You know why? Because I know that in Christ, I am, I've been set free. In Christ, I'm a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I, in Christ, I'm adopted as a son and daughter. I'm righteous already. I'm accepted. And that acceptance frees me. It frees me to reach out to anybody, and it frees me to join anybody, even if I'm rejected, and still be okay. We're welcomed as sons and daughters already. That is good news. You know, I don't need to be part of a group to be welcomed. I'm already welcomed in the greatest family possible in the greatest community of world history, which is the triune Godhead of Father, Son, and Spirit. And so therefore, from that flows confidence, assurance, hope, belonging. And the promise of scripture is that Jesus says, no one can snatch us from the Father's hand. Look at this woman. I mean, look who she's running towards. She's running to the very people that just moments ago she was trying desperately to hide from. She was before so ashamed. And look at verses 28 and 29. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? How does a person go from shame and hiding to freedom and vulnerability and boldness so quickly? The answer is the gospel. She's forever changed, forever free. You know, it is possible to be shamed, but never ashamed. To be shamed is a group of people trying to make you feel shame trying to make you feel low because of something you have done or something who you are. But if you are in Christ, you can actually experience shaming of people, but completely be free of shame. You're never ashamed. Ashamed is what you feel inside. Shaming is what you feel externally. And so the believer of Christ, truly who is rescued by Christ, is never ashamed, even if they are shamed. And I see this woman as that person. Suddenly, it goes from, I'm so ashamed to, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Romans 1, 16. For it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. You can see why it's a power. When you are not ashamed because of what Christ has done for you and brought you into his family, then you can go into any context and be confident in Christ. It is a power freed from the opinions of others, freed from even their attempts to shame you, freed from their judgment. It doesn't mean that they don't judge you or they don't try to make you feel ashamed, but you are still free from it. And that is a big difference. So it is this gospel that fuels her mission. She believes the gospel and then she just goes, leaves the water jar behind and goes and tells other people tells her village, tells the very people that she was running and hiding from. Freedom forever from guilt and shame. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives a situation where a man is literally on his deathbed. He knows he'll be dead in an hour. Suddenly, it dawns on him that he is helpless. 
He's going to face the very presence of God. He's agonizing because of this. He's desperate. And then in the moment's flash, he remembers you. He remembers one time you invited him to church. And so he contacts you and says, can you come to my house and visit me? I'm about to die. And so you go to his house and you see him lying on his back. What are you going to say to him in this moment? Will it be, I told you so? Martin Lloyd-Jones calls that sheer cruelty. He says, you're putting him in hell while he's alive. What are you supposed to say in that moment? What you're supposed to say is, like this Samaritan woman, there's a hope in me. It's Christ. Look at Jesus. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, they are able to tell this poor fellow that it is not too late. It is not hopeless. No one is justified by their works or by their lives, that we are all sinners and that there is no ultimate difference between us at all. There's no time to give experiences, no time to go through your drill and mechanically quote this or that. All they can say is, Jesus Christ, look to him. They just tell the dying man about him, who he is, what he has done, and that is the only way that this man can be helped, the only way he can find peace and rest for his soul. I think of this woman, she has no training. She didn't attend an evangelism class, you know? She didn't go and learn apologetics as to how to deal. She didn't go and receive therapy over her trauma of feeling ashamed. She receives the gospel, she's transformed. And then the first thing she just simply says, I gotta go tell other people about Jesus and what I, what he has, he has told me everything that I've done, all these things. And he goes, tell them, this is what I've done. This is who Jesus is. You need to come and see. My friends, that's what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying. Sometimes you just have to say, look at Jesus. We have many people that perhaps we've closed our hearts to and said, there's no way they're going to ever turn to Christ. What do I say? What do I say? The answer is, Turn to Christ, look at Jesus. And you might say, but what about after that? They might have all these questions. Praise be to God that they're not gonna turn to Christ because of the things you say. I actually, I've gone to school for this. I've gone to classes. No one has ever turned to Christ because I had the right answers for them. It is solely because the Holy Spirit has done the work. And that's the promise that we have. And that leads, jumps right into the next section, which is the fields of gospel mission. They're ripe with harvest. Verses 31 through 38. This Samaritan woman is one woman. And the disciples, when they return back from their errand, they see Jesus talking to her. Jesus says this, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. There's some debate as to what Jesus was referring to because we don't really know when he told his disciples to look up and see the fields of white harvest. Because there must have been something that was white. I mean, they, we sort of take that literally. What does that mean? And so it's thought that the land of Sychar was a place where white corn grew. 
And so maybe the whole land was covered at that moment with white corn. And so they looked out and they saw the fields of white harvest. One biblical scholar actually decided to go to the Sikar and to Jacob's well and look out. And when he did, what he saw were a bunch of Arabs tending their sheep. And he saw all of their white clothing and the sun was just streaking off of it. And he saw, he felt like it was just blinding white light all around. We don't exactly know what Jesus was referring to when he said the fields are white for harvest. But what we do know is that he was trying to make the point to his disciples that the harvest was already there. Whether it was the corn, whether it was the physical people, they didn't do anything for the harvest. They didn't actually go out there and till the ground and have conversations or didn't do a single thing to make people ready for the gospel. They just were ready already. And so what Jesus is saying is, you just need to go and actually tell people. You need to trust that God is doing the work. I like what that biblical scholar saw if they were a bunch of Arabs. You know why? Because Arabs, there's no way they would ever turn to Christ. There was no way. There was such opposition between Jews and Arabs. So for Jesus to say, if you can imagine, look, there's the white harvest and people, they would have looked out and said, those people, they're never turning to Christ. They're never trusting you, Lord. The Jews, at least they have a background. They understand biblical language, but Arabs, they're the heathen. They're people who will never turn to you, Lord. And Jesus says, they're the white harvest. You think you've done, you're, you're going to do the work? You have to be so intellectual, theologically minded, take seminars and classes, have exactly the right phrase to say no. Look at this woman. This woman who immediately turns to Christ, she goes and tells a huge village, and next week we'll talk about the fruits of what she did. But she just simply goes and does it, says, hey, look. But I think it's so important that she focused on this is who I am. This is, Jesus said everything I did. And I think we fail to see how critical our testimony of God's grace in our life is the means by which people see the Savior. One of the things that we did this past week with Gospel Well, it was our celebration night and what we had a testimony time of just hearing people's stories. And I tell you, as I heard stories of weakness, of brokenness, of people saying, you know, I, I grew up as a Christian. I, I didn't even know this story. This is where I've come from. Some of real darkness, but to see change, to see transformation. That story, that transformational story is what causes the world to notice and say, Wow, I don't hear that too often. This past week, Tim Keller uh, went to be with, with the Lord. He was 72 years old, battling pancreatic cancer. You know, I was actually not a Tim Keller fan for so long. In fact, I wrote a blog article early on in my ministry, and it was 10 reasons, literally, I, it might even be up 
I don't know, 10 reasons why John Piper is better than Tim Keller. I literally wrote that article. And I remember my friend, he would constantly tell me, oh, t- Tim Keller this, Tim Keller, and I'd be like, he doesn't even preach, like he's not going exposition. I mean, I would give all these reasons. I literally wrote that article. But one thing I came to realize later on is in listening to Tim Keller, but this is after I came to see the centrality of the gospel truth, is that what Keller was doing is he was taking just the simple truth of the gospel and letting people of all different backgrounds, so from atheists, uh, he's spoken at Google, at corporate headquarters, he's spoken to Columbia Presbyterian uh, Hospital, speaking to doctors and nurses about end-of-life issues. Because doctors and nurses, they said, they actually said to him, we have no idea how to talk to people who are dying. We're really good at trying to save people's lives, but when it comes to we have no treatment left, what do we do then? So they invited him to go and talk to them. And you know what he talked to them about? The gospel. He just basically said, there's a need. Every person needs has an emptiness, and only Christ fulfills it. See, it's hearing this story, it is transformative across the board, ethnically, life stage, socioeconomic class. It's the gospel message. And I look at this woman, I'm so thankful for her. I'm thankful for Nicodemus. Some of us are Nicodemuses. Your sin is just as dark as this Samaritan woman. The legalist and the licentious. The legalist and the antinomian. If you are, have lived a whole life moral, but you're like Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Your sin is dark. In a different way, but very dark. But if you're licentious, like this Samaritan woman, your sin is dark and you need Christ. Both. I think it's so important we see chapter three and four bound together and say, this tells the story of the good news of Jesus Christ. Hope. That he saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. This is new life. This is the gospel. This is good news. Let's pray together. Father, we will not tell others unless we have been transformed ourselves. Perhaps we're hiding. Perhaps there is that one thing that we say, we do not want to leave it behind. But whatever that one thing is, it's robbing us of joy. It's keeping us from freedom. Only when we see, taste and see that the Lord is good, that he is our hope, our great treasure. Jesus, like the parable you said, We can own a field, but if we really understand what you offer us, we will sell that field just so that we can get that one pearl because in that we have everything. So as we come to this table, may we do so with worship, falling on our knees and our hearts, bowing before you. If we've never trusted in you, 
I know, O Lord, that there is nothing I can say. Words will not change a person, but Spirit of God, would you take your word and cause people to see that truly there is nothing better than Christ. So we worship you this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.